Ephesians 5, chapter 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each, of, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well for you and that you may enjoy a long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. You can have a seat. So we're going to do something a bit different today. Uh, we're not actually done reading our teaching text just yet. And that's because there are many passages within the scripture that are like finding an oasis in the desert. It is, I was thirsty and I didn't know until I drank from this how truly thirsty I was. It's refreshing to my soul and enlivening to my whole being. And there are other passages in the scripture that are like being mauled by a wild animal while walking through that very same desert. And I've got a pretty good guess which category this passage falls in at first reading for the majority of us. And so we're gonna practice this ancient way of reading the text that we've done a number of times in our communities, but rarely if ever have we done it in a gathering as a whole, and it's called Lectio Divina which is simply a way of reading the Bible with our attention fixed on the voice of the Holy Spirit that takes an ancient text and makes it personal to me here and now. So before I utter a single word of teaching on this passage, I just wanna give the Spirit space to speak through this passage to each of us personally. Now we talked last week about the fact that the Spirit speaks equally to us through resonance and through resistance. And so let's see this passage again along both of those lines, acknowledging their presence within us. Resonance is fairly obvious. It's the way that most modern people learn to read the Bible from the first place. We zero in on the words that logically square with our experience. When the word of God somehow makes sense of what I've experienced in the world, I resonate with it. Resistance is equally important, but it requires greater intention. Ruth Haley Barton calls it the spiritual discipline of paying attention to that to which scripture I ignore or avoid. 
It's the willing choice to argue with God if you're a fight sort of person, or to stay in the presence of God if you're a flight sort of person when skipping over or running away is what you'd like to do. Because the truth is, if you can bear to believe this, that both resonance with and resistance with scripture is an invitation to deeper intimacy with God. So would you now just find a posture of reflection? I find it most helpful to feel my feet fixed firmly on the ground, to open my hands in front of me in this posture we talk about all the time that simply reminds my imagination what it is I'm attempting to do when I quiet my body. And we're gonna read this passage two more times. One paying attention to resonance, and then the second to resistance. So first, as this passage is read over you now, simply and meditatively pay attention to where am I resonating with this scripture? What lands in my soul like truth, either a hard truth or a comforting one, but a truth that I'm ready to receive? Ephesians 5.21 Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they fed and feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eyes is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. And now just remaining in the posture of reflection, We'll hear the reading one last time, but now ask yourself that second question, where is there resistance in me? Ephesians 
Ephesians 5:21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, Obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and with him there is no favoritism. The word of the Lord. Now just hold yourself in the place of prayer for one more moment. What brings up resistance in me? What do I lurch out against, fight or flight? What do I want either to argue back with or to ignore altogether, like it's not there and just jump to the next part? And then beneath that, where does that resistance come from? What does it tell me about myself? Where is it rooted? A past experience, an idea, an ideology, a cultural narrative, or a personal one? What does it tell me about God or about the Bible? And finally, and most importantly, What is the question that I want to ask to Jesus in light of this resistance between us? And then ask him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. All right, we've made it. We have spent the entire summer, 
in a teaching series titled Ephesians, Immeasurably More, where we have been journeying through the New Testament letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. And if you've ever read Ephesians before, it must have been in the back of your mind the entire time. I mean, you knew it was coming. All those weeks that we were spending on the sweeping promises in the letter's first half, you knew that one day we were going to have to get to the part about submission, slavery, and apparent patriarchy. Here we are. Now look, I, I trust Jesus. I believe Jesus lived the most compelling life that's been ever been lived, that he offers the way of truth and that he sacrificially defeated death that I might know this life here and now and for all of eternity. So I trust Jesus when he says life and life to the full is his offer and I want it. But Jesus also sticks us with a conundrum or what feels like a conundrum at first but we discover as a gift in the end. He takes the Bible very seriously. And Jesus quotes this thing up and down. He says that anyone who messes with even a single syllable of it is not on the same page as him. And he calls himself the living embodiment of all of it. And that means I don't have the privilege of pulling a Thomas Jefferson and just cutting the bits and parts out that I don't particularly like. Because if you ignore certain parts of scripture and then form a spirituality out of your preferred parts of the Bible with a few choice bits of Western ideology and a few insights from pop culture and maybe a mixture of a few things from your family of origin, then you end up with a God of your own creation, an artificial God and not a God that you can encounter or be encountered by. And the trouble with the God of your own creation is that that God can comfort you but can never actually heal you. And so by cutting yourself off from your tension with the God that we encounter on the pages of Scripture, we equally cut ourselves off from the very best things about the God that we encounter on the pages of Scripture. And if Jesus says all of it, every last syllable, I'm the fulfillment of all of it, and his life is the one that I'm trying to imitate and to receive, then there must be a way of understanding this chunk of Ephesians that actually leads me a step closer to life and life to the full which begs the obvious question, what could this possibly mean? Well, it's easier if we first grasp what it definitely doesn't mean. So here's a map of where we're headed together. What this doesn't mean, what this does mean, and then a picture is worth a thousand words. So first, what this definitely doesn't mean. It definitely is not a biblical justification for suppressing or oppressing women. Now, context is everything. For instance, when this passage is read in a 21st century socially socially progressive church in a city like Portland, the Apostle Paul might be immediately dismissed as sexist or patriarchal. Uh, And even those of us that are willing to stand with Paul might find ourselves wincing at his tone in a moment or two. But the Persian world is home to the fastest growing church on the globe today. And if this very passage was read in one of their underground house church gatherings on this very Sunday morning, the very words that make us wince would read to them as quite empowering and progressive. Context is everything. So what is the context that Paul's writing to? And what does that mean about the point that he's making here? Well, in the first century Greco-Roman world, uh, the common family structure included no form of friendship whatsoever between husband and wife. And Paul is advocating here for a reciprocal relationship between husband and wife that demolishes the hierarchy that existed within the traditional family structure of his day rather than upholding one. 
In an ancient uh, culture, marriage had much to do with social status and property rights and legal heirs and very little to do with love. It was also widely accepted that a husband would sleep with both his wife and several mistresses. That was the common practice of the day. There was a common Athenian turn of phrase in the first century. Wives are for heirs, prostitutes are for pleasure. Prostitution was a part of the Roman tax system. They built their economy on it. That's how common it was. Which makes all of Paul's statements about sacrificial love in the image of Jesus and loving your wife as your own body hugely on the side of dignity toward women, not oppression. Taking a cue from Paul, records clearly show that the early church fathers actively preached against husbands sleeping with prostitutes, leading to the illegalization of the process for the first time in history. So in a culture that gave men the right to divorce women, but never women the right to divorce men, scripture counsels strongly against divorce. And in a culture where physical and emotional abuse was the norm, Paul counsels against any form of harshness from a husband to a wife in Colossians 3. And in a culture of promiscuity and prostitution within marriage exclusively on the side of the man, Paul counsels toward marital fidelity in 1 Corinthians 7. And in response to laws that gave men freedom but demeaned women, Paul counsels toward a marriage of mutuality in 1 Corinthians 3. So how are the instructions for home order and structure from Ephesians landing with women in the context in which it was first written? Well, historian and theologian Jerry Sitzer notes that in the early centuries, Christianity was especially attractive to women because the church was the society on the earth where they were given the highest level of dignity, status, and equality more than any other environment that showed up on the face of the earth anywhere prior to or presently during this time. Women who were married were then offered a marriage based on mutuality, not her hierarchy. Women who were single or widowed were cared for the church along the exact same lines that a married woman would receive security from her husband. And this was in a society where an unmarried woman did not have the right to work in most cases and was left to essentially the welfare state of the time and place. That is not a biased look back on history either. Tertullian, a lawyer writing in the late second century from whom we draw much of our Greco-Roman history, wrote this. Men cry out that people of both sexes, of every age and condition, even of high position, are passing over to the Christian society. This they lament as though it were a calamity. Men are crying out against the church at the same time that women are flooding into the church. Equally, the famed historian Pliny writes with alarm that when he discovered that within the church as nowhere else in society, women are giving, given leadership positions and they appear to be equal contributors to the community. What today so many of us read as an obstacle to women both was and is an attractive invitation to women. Whatever this passage means, it is definitely not a biblical justification for the suppression or oppression of women. It's also definitely not enabling child abuse. I mean, depending on your family of origin, reading words like children obey your parents as in the Lord may read completely logical or psychologically manipulative and extremely dangerous. So again, we're reading a letter here that's addressed to particular people. And however horrific you may find the treatment of women in the ancient world, kids had it even worse. Infanticide was a hugely common practice of intentionally abandoning babies to die of exposure. 
There were significantly higher populations of men than women in the Roman world, and that's because female children were viewed as less useful to the family and often discarded upon birth. Men not only held hierarchical authority over women, but they also held uh, hierarchical authority over children within their home. Then Jesus shows up welcoming children and giving them his undivided attention. Jesus rebukes his own disciples when they uh, try to shoo the kids away so he can get back to the serious business. Paul uh, was being revolutionary and probably getting himself into a good deal of social trouble during his time when he counseled, fathers, do not exasperate your children because the common practice was exasperation at best. But again, the church created a whole new society where kids were viewed not for their usefulness but for their personhood, for their imago Dei. Paul is speaking directly into the family structure of his day in the way of Jesus, not to give permission to abuse, but to eradicate it altogether. Third, this is definitely not advocating for slavery. Now that's an important point anywhere, but exponentially important in, uh, as a church, sorting out the implications of the letter of Ephesians in the United States of America. And that's because our nation still today has a longer history as an enslaving nation than we have as an abolitionist one. Think about that. Slavery and race-based slavery was legally permissible and socially normalized here in our home longer than it's been illegal and abnormal. Worst of all, some white property owners in America used scripture and used this passage from Ephesians 6 in particular as the biblical justification for slavery. And of course, that was gross, manipulative, and both historically and theologically irresponsible and unjustifiable, but it still happened. So it's important for you to know and to know clearly that the Bible is the most progressively dignifying document in history when it comes to human slavery. In, in Exodus, God begins redemption by revealing himself as a deliverer who frees slaves. The Old Testament law included legally punishable requirements placed on slave owners for ill treatment. Deuteronomy instructs Israel to welcome runaway slaves as brothers and sisters, equals. The prophets repeatedly include freedom for the captives as core to the coming Messiah's resume. And then when God shows up in our world in the form of Jesus, he frames his ministry through Isaiah 61, which explicitly includes that very freedom. Finally, a number of the New Testament letters then apply Jesus' teachings to communities, most radically in the letter of Philemon, creating holy new societies ordered by a holy new understanding of personhood. Esau Macaulay, who gives a full treatment to this in his brilliant book, Reading While Black, concludes, the widespread move to abolish slavery is a Christian innovation. So then how is Ephesians 6 a passage not of justification for enslaving, but of liberation for the enslaved? Well, first you need to know this. John Perkins, in his latest book, One Blood, argues that there's a significant difference between ancient Near Eastern slavery that we encounter on the pages of scripture and the transatlantic slave trade that's written into our nation's history. The biblical references to slavery that you find here in Ephesians 6 and then one other in Titus 2, they weren't used to justify the inhumane treatment of slaves. Instead, what was being referenced here was the common practice known as bond service 
when a bond servant would willingly choose to work for a property owner for a determined amount of time, and at the end of that time, the bond servant was then set free. It was a contractual engagement between two consenting parties, more frequently uh, used in that arrangement than it ever was as a forced arrangement held in place by violence. Now, is that practice still problematic and unjust? Absolutely, don't hear me justifying it even for a second. I'm simply trying to give you a picture though of what's being addressed on the pages of the New Testament because it's likely different than what might jump immediately to your mind when you hear a term like slavery. Second, N.T. Wright notes that the Roman world ran on slavery the way our modern world runs on electricity. It was the backbone of the economy. It was the power source to everything. The Greek physician Galen estimated that one-third of the population were slaves. And then along came the church, instructed by Paul's letters, and potentially the greatest social social outrage caused by the early church in ancient days was the dignity that was given to slaves. Aristides, a second century Athenian philosopher, wrote curiously of the kindness with which Christians treated slaves. Any male or female slaves or dependents from whom individuals among them may have, they persuade them to become Christians because of the love they feel towards them. If they do become Christians, they are brothers to them without discrimination. And while the eradication of slavery did not happen society-wide until the 18th century, we have documents dating back to as early as the fourth century of Christians arguing for a, a biblical perspective for the eradication of slavery. At no point in history prior to the writing of a letter like Ephesians has there been a community like Ephesus where slaves are welcomed in as equals and as family, and what started in the church eventually reformed the empire. So whatever it is you think of Paul's instructions here in Ephesians 6, it is definitely not advocating for maintaining slavery. In fact, the effect of this letter was the exact opposite. And then finally, this is definitely not evidence that we now understand things that the Apostle Paul, living in a more primitive world, didn't. Maybe you've been relieved thus far, but you still think this chunk of Ephesians is woefully out of date. Like Paul might have been the best of his time, but now we know more than he didn't, and so we can move beyond Paul's instructions to more progressive understandings of the way of Jesus because you're really grateful for what Paul's letters accomplished in the ancient world for women and children and slaves, but that doesn't erase the fact that they still read to you like an episode from Handmaid's Tale. And if that or some version of it is what you're thinking, I just want to encourage you to proceed down that train of thought with great caution. If you were to pick up a copy of the New York Times from 2005, not 1955, 2005, you'd find an excerpt or two in there that is culturally and intellectually embarrassing today. Now, does that make me or you smarter than the uh, person who wrote the article, than the journalist with the double masters from Yale who got a job at the Times? Probably not. It means that we swim in waters of an ever-evolving or maybe just ever-changing cultural climate. And so the ways we communicate ideas change, but it would be a mistake for us just to throw out the ideas altogether. C.S. Lewis coined the term chronological snobbery and defined it as the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate of our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that count discredited. See, the other side of that New York Times example is that the op-ed piece you read this morning 
or the email you drafted this week or the conversation that you'll have with a friend this afternoon might include content that you feel embarrassed by in a couple decades, much less a couple centuries. So it's a mistake to equate social norms of communication with intellectual capacity or truth within that communication. Ephesians 5 and 6 is something, but it is not evidence that we've grown more enlightened than Paul and all the other biblical writers. So now that we know what this passage definitely isn't, that still leaves the bigger question. What does this mean? And let me just say right up front that we're not gonna turn over every last stone that's in this passage. We don't have time for that this morning, to be quite honest, and I don't think that would be the best way to serve us as a body of believers. What we will do is get to the heart of it. And I'm gonna cut right to the heart of it because at first draft, I had a lot of really fun anecdotes and things like that in here just to keep you interested. But we don't have time. So we're gonna cut right to the heart of it. And here's the heart of it. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the first verse and that's the ethic. It's put bluntly and simply right there at the top. Every syllable that follows this verse is an exploration of that ethic in the common environments of everyday life. What stands out as a theme when you read this passage as a whole, as it wanders through marriage and parenting and work, what Paul wants us to know for sure is that this is not his ethic, that nothing of what he's saying here is original to him. Jesus, he's the original source for all this material. Now, depending upon your translation, the phrasing could vary slightly, but the phrase, as to Christ, or as it's also translated, out of reverence for Christ, is repeated in some form 11 times in this passage. 11 times. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. You get it, it keeps going like this. If this were a song, the various relational contexts are the verses, but as to Christ is the chorus. It's the hook, it's the catchy part that gets stuck in your head that you're humming along to while you're doing the dishes. As to Christ is what Paul is driving home. The various environments and relationships is just the application to that same point in a way that would connect with every reader of this letter that's going out to a wildly diverse new family that includes men and women, single and married, children and the elderly, rich and peasants, slave and free. And this reverence that's being spoken about here, it's not about formality. It's not about a black tie event or something like that. It's about attentiveness. As to Christ means live attentive to, awake to, aware of Jesus in the common environments and common relationships of your everyday life. And what is the evidence of this attentiveness? What does it look like practically when someone lives attentively to Jesus in ordinary relationships and common environments? It looks like submission. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the ethic. It's not a word we use a lot these days. It's not a word that lands gently in the soul of many modern people. And so I'm thankful that Paul gives us more than a word. He gives us a person. Submit out of reverence for Christ. 
You see, to, pro- to properly understand the powerful instruction to households in Ephesians, you must constantly refer back to the foundation these instructions stand on, Jesus and his radical redefinition of greatness and call to submission. So throughout his ministry, Jesus confusingly withdrew from the crowds whenever they wanted to make him king, when they wanted to make him great. In John 2, Jesus would not entrust himself to them, meaning to the crowds that adored him because he knew what was in each person. What an eerie phrase. In John 6, the the crowds try to make Jesus king at the high point of his popularity and he slips away purposefully. Jesus was not interested in greatness as it was culturally defined. He was interested in redefining greatness altogether. And this was so confusing to his disciples. They kept thinking about the ruling and reigning kingdom they were going to be cast members in. And so Jesus, seeing the error of their ways, a man who mostly taught in parables, says to them bluntly and clearly three different times, we're on the way to Jerusalem because I'm going to get crucified there and they still don't get it. At one point, Peter pulls him aside to try to correct his theology. At another point, just days later, James and John come with their mom to ask if they can have the thrones on his right and left when he comes to reign forever. Jesus is not interested in greatness as culturally defined. He's redefining it, but it's hard to catch up with for us and for them. On the last night of Jesus' life, just after his last supper, the disciples break into an all-out dispute over which one of them is greatest. And so what does Jesus do? He stands up from the table, takes off his outer garment, wraps a towel around his waist, and washes each of their feet, and then says, I've done this as an example that you might go and do what you've seen me do for you. A cultural definition of greatness was so ingrained, and Jesus' redefinition was so upside down they couldn't see it, till he finally showed them in the most ultimate way, through a cross. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, says Philippians 2. So Jesus redefines greatness. He freely and willingly submitted himself to the point of laying down his very life. And this, his submission was his greatness. And then he instructs us to do the same. Go wash each other's feet. Take up your own crosses. Lay down your own lives. Now pull that with you back to Ephesians. Submit to one another out of reference for Christ. Jesus has redefined greatness for us by the radical ethic of submission. So live it in the most common places, in the most ordinary relationships. That's the foundation. And now that you've got the foundation, let me show you that Paul, what he writes here is not traditional or demeaning. It is the furthest thing from vanilla. It is the radically upside down call to follow the king who reigns not from a throne, but from a cross. And Paul does two things right at the beginning of this passage that are intentional subversions of the cultural understanding of his time, but are almost entirely lost on us. The first is in the order by which he addresses people. See, under the ethic of submission, Paul then lists three couplets of people, wives and husbands, children and fathers, slaves and masters. But in each one, he speaks to the subordinate by cultural standards, the subordinate party first. And that was revolutionary. 
Because in other ancient documents, a woman, child, or slave wouldn't even be addressed at all. The ancient Stoic philosophers, for instance, in all of their literature, they address only the person at the top of the social order. Paul not only addresses the ignored, but he addresses them first. So the way that this letter would have first been read over a community would have been unthinkably dignifying to those who had no dignity in the world in which they ordered or they lived out their days. Secondly, the superior, by ancient definition, was called to submission by Paul, not only the inferior. And again, this was in stark contrast to other ancient writings. Nothing in respected literature to this point in history called a husband to submit himself to his wife or a father to his child or a master to his slave. This passage in Ephesians was jaw-dropping in its dignity to women, children, and slaves, and it was gently but clearly confrontational to men, fathers, and slave owners. It's the application of Jesus' submission in Paul's time and place. So wives are called to submit themselves to their husbands, and that is a picture of the church submitting herself to Christ. Husbands, then, are equally called to submit. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Wait, how is that submission? Certainly lands a whole lot softer, doesn't it? Well, remember, to understand the letter, you've got to refer back to the foundation, to Jesus. And in John chapter 15, Jesus defined love for us. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down your life for your friends. And then he went out and did it. He laid down his entire life. Husbands, love your wives. How? How should we husbands love our wives? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, lay down your whole life. Sacrifice everything you have. Absorb every cost for this one person I've given you to love the way that I love you. That is submission. Children are called to honor their parents, to relate to imperfect, ordinary, fallen, disappointing human parents with obedience and honor. Parents are then called to avoid exasperating their kids, but to raise them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now remember the foundation. Take the principle back to Jesus. Jesus, who parentally submitted himself to his own disciples by allowing them to be where they are, not where he wanted them to be. He gave them free space to grow up and to mature. He did not exasperate them, but he brought them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So think, for example, about what Jesus said to Peter just before his denial. He said, you're gonna deny me tonight three times, Peter, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So rather than, listen, Pete, you think you're a hot shot, but you got a big slice of humble pie coming, my man. Or, or, Peter, you gotta grow up fast, because I'm telling you, the biggest test is coming tonight. Jesus let Peter be where he was, overconfident in himself, uninformed about the nature of the kingdom, and Jesus loved him there where he was, not where he wanted him to be. He did not pretend that Peter was in a different place, but the way that he dealt with Peter was by prayer, not by exasperation. Oh God, would you make me a father like that? But Lord, have mercy on me in the meantime because I've got a long way to go. 
Richard Foster says, submission is the spiritual discipline that frees us from the everlasting burden of always needing to get our own way. In submission, we are learning to hold things lightly. We're also learning to diligently watch over the spirit in which we hold others, honoring them, preferring them, loving them. Parenting, it seems to me six years in now at least, is the spiritual invitation to learn submission, to be freed from the everlasting burden of always needing things to go my own way. And that's because my happiness as a parent is absolutely dependent on my willingness to surrender the need to have things go my way. Because as a father of three children under six years old, my experience at this restaurant, or, or my experience at, on this camping trip that I've so meticulously and thoughtfully planned for my boys, or, or on this perfectly sunny Saturday on the coast, it is entirely colored by my kids' behavior and attitude, of which I am not in control. If we go to the beach and it is perfect weather, but then Simon gets a single grain of sand in his eye somewhere in the first half hour, it doesn't matter if it's the most beautiful day you can imagine. My experience will be shaped by his response to the grain of sand, right? Or if we go out to eat as a family, but Amos hasn't had like a perfect cadence in his naps leading up to 6.30 p.m., it doesn't matter how good the food is. I'm standing next to the table going, just so everyone else at the restaurant can enjoy their meal. It doesn't matter how perfect the weather is or how good the food is, I'm in survival mode. Parenting is such a profound loss of control. And that doesn't mean, they thought it was funny last time too, that isn't a joke. That is like a straightforward, undeniable human truth. And look, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't teach correct or discipline as a parent. You absolutely should. It says that right there in the passage. Jesus did equally have a vision for who Peter was becoming, Petros. It's in the name that he gave him. He saw his redeemed identity first and he never stops calling him into it. And there's a few moments in the narrative where he says things directly that are probably hard to hear. But the way that he believes Peter into being that redeemed self is by prayer, by compassion. It's by submission, not by exasperation. And my ability to enjoy my own kids and to help them develop at a pace that is developmentally appropriate and to treasure up all the memories of the time I get to spend with them, it is fully dependent on the spiritual practice of submission. Lovingly surrendering my need to control the outcome so that I might sacrificially and, and love a positionally weaker party, which in my case would be these three little boys. Then finally, enslaved peoples are told that to relate to a proper, I'm sorry, they're told to relate to the property owner they work for through the lens of Christ. So first they're told, see your masters through the lens of Jesus, as maybe in spite of themselves, equal image bearers of God himself alongside you. And then secondly, go about your work, not for the approval of that property owner, but as an act of worship to Christ. And in this way, even the dehumanizing corruption of such an unjust system might become a vessel or a context where it's possible to live out of reverence to Christ or attentive to his presence with me. Masters are then given an equally stern or a much more stern reminder that both they and their slaves 
serve the same master. Now take that back to the foundation of Jesus. Jesus redefined greatness from the lowest place. He said more than once that in his kingdom, when it's fully realized, the last will be first and the first will be last. So says Paul, while you go on living in this corrupt world with its corrupt systems and practices that elevate some and demean others, you need to see through all that because it's an illusion. Masters, the beneficiary of this false power in this expiring economy, you need to relate to the enslaved, the victims of that same false power and that same expiring economy, the way that Jesus relates to people. And how is that? Submit, lay down your life, give yourself away. Can you see how revolutionary this was? How dignifying Paul's letter was to those in low positions. How lovingly confrontational it was to those at the top of the food chain. The atheist philosopher Luke Ferry, in his book, A Brief History of Thought, argues that the early Christian church invented the concept of equal rights. But maybe you're thinking, yeah, but what about when one partner in the marriage is living the Jesus way of submission and the other isn't, doesn't it then become destructive, manipulative, and abusive and not beautiful and helpful? Or what about when one parent is an abuser or just absent altogether? What does obey and honor even mean then? Or or what about in a world where slavery still happens and there's more living enslaved people today than there's ever been at any other time in history? And then maybe others of you are thinking something more like, okay, so now what does that mean for the ongoing disagreement that I'm having with my spouse about the amount of financial support that we give to our adult child? Or what forms of discipline are appropriate uh, for and and when should they be used with children? Because I'm looking for a biblical perspective on that kind of thing. Or what about when slavery is outlawed, but the history of slavery is still very much in the waters that we're swimming in? What does submission mean then? So a brief intermission is in order to address the yeah buts and the okay so's that exist among us right now. So first to the yeah but crowd. There certainly are limits to biblical submission. And those limits are just as biblical as the concept of submission is. For instance, Peter calls believers to submit to the local government in 1 Peter chapter two. But when the governing authorities command Peter to stop teaching Jesus in Acts chapter four, he answered, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help but speaking about what we have seen and heard. Said more simply, nah, brah. (laughs) Not gonna happen, I've got a greater authority than you. Similarly, Paul writes in Romans 13, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. When those governing authorities were then failing to carry out justice in the way of Jesus, Paul called them to account in Acts chapter 16. So there are limits submission can cross when it stops being creative, a creative force in the world, and it becomes a destructive force in the world. And the Bible gives us precedent for living into the creative force of submission and for walking away from the destructive force of submission. So submission, like every other biblical ethic, but maybe more so than every other biblical ethic, can be abused. And that means the application of this way of Jesus in the relationships of your everyday life does require discernment. And now to the okay so's among us. Some want to put practical questions on this passage. 
Okay, then what does this mean for this or that? But Ephesians 5 and 6, it doesn't give us practical instructions. What it gives us is a new way of seeing. It's saying learn to see through the eyes of this upside down kind of glory called submission and then act accordingly. Not just in the extraordinary environments because anyone can live this out for an hour with your Bridgetown community or while you serve at Refugee Care Collective. Act accordingly in the common environments of your everyday life. Bring this that close. Bring it all the way home. That's what gets these glorious promises from the letter's first half down into your life in the letter's second half. It's what brings all of this from the stars to the dirt like we've been talking about. Close of intermission. I want you to know this passage is not saying that when push comes to shove, husbands get to make all the hard decisions. It is not a defense of traditional family values as they've been defined in America in the last 200 years. It is not a method of parenting discipline. It is not an embarrassing wince away away moment at an otherwise beautiful biblical story. And it's not an argument to deconstruct any of those things either. This passage isn't about that. What it's about is a radical call to submission in each relational category. This passage says wives are called to submission, husbands are called to submission, children are called to submission, parents are called to submission, slave owners are called to submission, and even the enslaved are called to submission. It is a common call to every member of the household. But you know what they say? There's a moment when our words run out and a picture is worth a thousand words. And so I wanna land today with the picture. But to get to that picture, why the household of all places? I mean, why does Paul zero in on the household when working this out? Because the household is the context where our devotion to Jesus' relational ethic gets most tested. The people that are closest to us, they get the worst of us. And it doesn't get closer to you than sharing a roof or a refrigerator or a bed. Home brings this as close as it can possibly get. It's easy, it's even compelling for us to celebrate a businessman who submits himself to a houseless person by serving in a soup kitchen line. But what about when that same businessman goes home and submits himself to his wife or she submits herself to him, then we might view the very same ethic as demeaning. You see, when submission stays at a safe distance outside of the mess of proximate relationship, it's beautiful because it's neat and tidy and simple and time-bound. But the closer you bring submission, the messier it gets. Eugene Peterson writes this, God is God only relationally, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God creates only relationally. God exists only relationally. God gives only relationally. The church is a gathering of Christians under the conditions of God's relationality. Ephesians is an immersion in relationality. Spiritual maturity does not happen in isolation. Spiritual maturity is not like going to the gym and toning up your spiritual muscles. Spiritual maturity is fundamentally relational because God is fundamentally relational. It requires community because God has revealed himself to us as a God in community. Submission within the household uh, holds within it the most complexity and the most potential at the same time. 
Because the most scandalous part of this passage is the bit that we have not yet touched. Look back with me at chapter five, verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. See, when this gets lived in the household, when a wife makes it her aim to honor, see, hear, and know her husband, and when a husband equally makes it his aim to sacrificially love his wife, the home where the husband and wife live together, my home or your home, it becomes a visible picture of an invisible reality, a picture of Christ and the church. And what does Jesus call his church again and again from Genesis to Revelation, his bride. What this passage is saying is that our marriages, our homes, our households can become a revelation to the world, a picture of the God who's coming after us by the ethic of submission, by the radical redefinition of the way we relate to one another given us by Jesus. One of the most famous icons in church history is traced back to a Russian painter in the 15th century. It's commonly called the Trinity. The reason that this painting has stood the test of time is because it pictures the divine in a common scene. Father, Son, and Spirit seated at a table, freely enjoying one another's company. Here we have the communal God in a joyful state of mutual submission. More recently, though, I've reflected on this version of that same famous painting, which was done by Sylvia Perzak, who's a, social, who's, I'm sorry, a Polish artist. Now, if that first one you looked at is a picture of God, I believe this one is a picture of the church. It's beautiful. You can see the outlines of the nature of the first, and yet so much is left unfinished. So many lines waiting to be drawn, so much color yet to be filled in. There's so much that the canvas lacks, but you are beginning to get the image, aren't you? You see, the task of the church is not and has never been to prove the biblical story. The task of the church has been to become a picture of the God revealed through the biblical story. Submission is a key ingredient to becoming that picture. Jesus is the one and only begotten Son of God. The Father begets himself to the Son by giving himself to the Son. The Son begets himself to you and me by giving himself to us through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit then empowers us to beget ourselves to one another by becoming a new kind of household, a new kind of church, ordered by the life of a Trinitarian God. The simple and profound way we get that worked out practically is this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So this passage, what it is, it's a call to submission, (laughs) to the upside down way that Jesus taught us to know one another. It is a radical call to submission in each relational category, a relational ethic with its roots in the mystery of the Trinity.